0: the beginning of our prayer week, we want to uh, talk about prayer, look at prayer in the Word. And so turn with me to Mark chapter 11, if you take your Bibles, second book of the New Testament, there's Matthew, then Mark, find the big number 11, we're going to be in chapter 11 in just a moment. Are there any basketball fans in the house here today? Any Raise your hand if you're a basketball fan, okay, some of you. Well then to all of you, I apologize for my story I'm going to share, okay. I was a college wrestler, and as a college wrestler, we would play basketball to warm up, kind of like our little joke, you know? It's good to warm up with, you know? And what we would do is we'd take the wrestling mats, we'd lay them out over the whole gym floor, and then we'd play basketball. Now, what we would do is, you know, you didn't have to dribble because that just slows you down, so no dribbling. Um, No rules. You could check people. You could take their legs out from underneath them. A lot of fun. The only thing that was really similar was you had to get the ball in the hoop, Everything else was different, probably more like rugby than it was basketball. So I, I mean, it was so much fun. And to this day, I enjoy playing basketball, but people tell me that I'm fouling them. So I don't quite know all the rules, I think. But it wasn't really basketball, was it? No, I mean, if, if a basketball player would have come through that gym, I think they did a couple times. I mean, that's like sacrilegious. We had perverted the sport of basketball. <laughs> You know, and if you're a basketball player, you take the sport seriously, as you should. And that's a game that I'm talking about. We as the church have been given a task far more important than any sport that's ever existed. And, And to accomplish that task that God's given us, there are fundamental elements, things we must be doing, things that are central to what it means to even be the church. And one of these fundamental elements is prayer. Like dribbling is to basketball, it is a fundamental rhythm for the Christian. It is a fundamental rhythm for the church. Without it, we make a mockery of our faith. If we are not a praying church, then we are playing church. I want you to look with me at Mark chapter 11 and this final Passion Week of Jesus. So if you come to Mark 11 and you're reading through the book of Mark, you're now entering the Passion Week, the final week before Jesus dies. And in the beginning of the chapter, we have the triumphal entry, right? Jesus enters in on the donkey, and everyone's shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But if you read the different gospel writers, you understand that Jesus is actually weeping. He's weeping for Jerusalem, for Israel, because his heart is burdened because they've rejected him. And then he spends some time looking around the temple, you see, in Mark 11. And then he returns to Bethany. we pick up the story in verse 12 the next morning as they're traveling back into Jerusalem from Bethany. So Jesus and his disciples. Let's read Mark 11. Read with me verses 12 through 24. I'll read if you follow along here. Mark 11 verse 12 and following. God's word says this. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Pause right there. Mark gives us a little um, pause and kind of says, remember that thought. He'll come back to there. But I just want to say, many people find this extremely confusing. Like, why is Jesus looking for figs when it says right here, it's not the season for figs? Well, most experts, as they study figs and figology or whatever it is, I don't even know. Okay, they, they say that as the fig tree develops, there are these little buds that form. Different word than the word figs. And then the leaves come on the tree. And before you know it, those little buds become mature figs that most people then harvest and eat. But oftentimes local people would grab the little nubs, the little buds, and they would eat those. So most likely Jesus is looking for something, knowing there should be something. And yet there's nothing, just leaves. And that's, I think, why it says it's not the season for figs. He's looking for something a little different. That seems to be what's going on here. Let's continue in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And now we come back to the fig tree. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away To its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Note that this is the only destructive miracle of Jesus's that we have recorded. Verse 22 And Jesus answered, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Two things about prayer I want you to see here this morning. Number one, prayer is essential. Prayer is essential. Look at verse 17. When Jesus describes the temple, the gathering place for God's people, how does he describe it? He actually calls it a house of prayer. Prayer is not just one of the things that we do as God's people. Prayer is fundamental to our identity. It is essential to who we are. It is essential to what makes church. Whenever we do church, prayer should be involved because this is a house of prayer Jesus is quoting here Isaiah 56. And so, of course, if we think about it, going all the way back to Isaiah 56, prayer has always been God's heart for his people. It's one of the things that defines the gathering of God's people together to worship in any fashion is prayer. The scriptures tell us that the disciples regularly prayed at the temple, just as we see here, Acts 3.1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. The ninth hour. And the Jewish synagogue, which became where God's people worshiped corporately once the temple was destroyed, that synagogue often was just simply described as a place of prayer. So you'll see in the scriptures like Acts 16 13 that Paul is speaking about this and he says, You know, on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. So the synagogue is just simply called a place of prayer. And we know that the church from its very inception was a place of prayer, Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Prayer makes the short list for what it means to be church, to do church. You know, you can read all kinds of manuals on the church and all of that. But when we look to what the church is supposed to be, we look to passages like Acts 2.42. What is the church supposed to be? And there's a short list here. There are are a lot of debatable things about how you should do church, like chairs or pews, or contemporary music or traditional music, or Cheez-Its or goldfish crackers in the nursery. I mean, there's a lot of freedom here, right? A lot of freedom. But when it comes to what we must do, what is essential, fundamental, it's prayer. It's at the very heart of what it means to be church. It's why at Bethel we, we yearly take a week and say, okay, we always want to be praying, but for this week, the week of prayer, we dedicate it in a special way. We, we emphasize prayer. We try to pray in different rhythms than maybe what we're used to. It's why uh, many of our ministries this week will have a special prayer emphasis. It's why that weekly e-news, that, that uh, email will go out because we want to be praying the entire week. It's why we do the feast next week. Sunday, I'd encourage you, come out to that. It's going to be at Crown Point at the main campus. We do it here next month, okay? It's not the potluck that brings people out. I mean, I don't know if anyone comes out because of the potluck. Maybe some college students who are like desperate for some food. I don't know. But we come because we are praying together as God's people, to come from different campuses, united in prayer. So check that out. It is a great opportunity to pray. Let us, Bethel, be so very careful That nothing ever eclipses prayer. That we're not so busy with different things, all the focuses that we have and all of the activity and all that stuff, that we lose sight of a fundamental rhythm of Christianity, which is prayer. May nothing ever supersede prayer in importance. If we stop praying, we cease to be the church as God intended us to be. If we're not a praying church, we are playing church. We're like a sailboat without a sail. You know, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, most modern sailboats have a motor on them, I think, right? But there was a day when that was not the case. And if you are out in the open ocean and you had no sail, it was ripped or torn or what. you're in trouble. I mean, you're going wherever. You're not going to make much progress. You're, you're actually in danger. And I love this analogy for prayer because the idea is that as we pray, the Holy Spirit fills us and the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us and moves us. And without prayer, we're sitting there with oars just trying to work our way across the ocean, you know. I want you to notice in this text how temple worship had degenerated by the time of Christ. I mean, Jesus says, my house is meant to be a house of prayer, but it's no longer a house of prayer. It's a house of profit. And this makes Jesus very angry. I mean, he essentially goes Chuck Norris on the crowd, right? I remember being a boy, studying this, reading this passage, and thinking, I, I, can get, I can get with this Jesus. Like, this is pretty cool. And in my mind, I think probably I was imagining it a little different than it actually was. He's in the middle. Jesus does a roundhouse. They all fly in from the circle. Like, you know, I had an imagination. But, but, but this is the only time that Jesus was ever violent, This is the only time that Jesus was ever violently angry. So I've always believed it's important for us to note what is it that makes God violently angry. And don't you think that would be important to note? What is it that makes God violently angry? And he says this, and I believe he said this, not mumbling, not whispering, not genteel. I think he said, My house shall be called a house of prayer. And you've made it into a den of robbers. And fury in his eyes, righteous anger. I would love to spend so much time here. I'd love to talk about God's heart for the nations. Notice he says, my, ha- my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. See, Jesus is clearing the, the court of the Gentiles. That's where all this money changing is happening. Here's a place that's supposed to be the, the one place that a non-Jew can go into and to, to hear you know, the echoes of God's mercy and to pray before God and to be in at least close to God's presence to be connected to God's people. And what have they done? They've stolen that from the Gentiles. In fact, the the average Jew was expecting the Messiah to clear the temple of Gentiles, but he comes and clears it for the Gentiles. I'd love to talk about God's heart for the nations and missions. I'd love to talk about racism because I think this passage addresses the sin of racism. But we don't have a lot of time, and we're going to focus on prayer. So we're going to keep on moving here. And I, I want to read Isaiah 56, which is what Jesus is quoting. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 56:6 through8. Notice, though God's focus on those outside of Israel. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The place where God's people gather is supposed to be a house of prayer, and a house of prayer for all the nations, for all peoples, it says. Truthfully, every single person, Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, is born into this world an outcast. An outcast apart from God. Even notice verse 8 of the text we just read. I don't know if it can be up there. But it says, the Lord God gathers the outcasts of Israel. The outcasts of Israel, even the insiders, are outcasts. It's important that we remember that God's heartbeat has always been for all peoples. Always. Even in the Old Testament, it was for the outsiders. And Israel, God's people, was given the privilege of accomplishing that mission, of sharing that with the nations. And when you consider what the temple was intended to be, and what it had become, according to Mark 11, there is great disparity. It's now used as a place to separate rather than a place to to bring others together. It was meant to be God-centered. I mean, a house of prayer, it's about God, and it's others-oriented for all the nations, but the Jewish people had made it self-centered and self-oriented, a way to make a quick buck. This is a perversion of high proportions. When we as a church, we get away from God-centeredness, we get away from others-orientedness, we start to turn selfish and we're no longer functioning as the church. And I believe prayer is essential in this endeavor. I, be, I believe that prayer, when we're engaged in passionate prayer for our community, when we're engaged in passionate prayer for those in our small group, when we're engaged in passionate prayer for our leadership, and when we're praying for those that we're sharing the gospel with, and we're doing all that this as a church, it keeps us from being self-centered. Because, you know, you can even walk into this place or be a part of the church and have it be about you, right? I mean, we've all been a part of churches with fighting and disunity and and, and and all this stress because people want their own way. And so prayer is a huge part of us coming before God and saying, God, it's all about you. It's about others. Further, we should note that if we do not pray, we're guilty of hypocrisy. If we had the time to walk through Mark 11 and see the context here, there's, there's an overriding theme of hypocrisy, the the chapter begins with all these people shouting, Hosanna! You know, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And then five days later, they're shouting, crucify him. Right? We have a fig tree that has no figs, no buds at all. It's appearance without substance. We have a bustling temple with the appearance of life, but it lacks purity, and it lacks integrity, and it lacks worship. And then the chapter ends with these religious authorities who are attacking Jesus' authority. Who who makes you God, you know? And prayer fits right into the middle of all this. If we attempt to live some kind of Christian life, some, you know, activity, bustling activity, going here, going there, doing this, doing that, with no intimate prayer life, with no God-centered prayer life, and others-oriented prayer, we find ourselves to be hypocrites, like a fig tree without... Figs, no inner life of substance, no power. So we need to be a praying church because it is essential to what it means to even be the church, to be a Christian. It is essential. But also notice this morning prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. Jesus' lesson to his disciples is that prayer is powerful. We could look at several lessons from the fig tree, but Jesus zeroes in on one in particular, and it's this prayer. Fueled by faith is extraordinary. Prayer fueled by faith is extraordinary. Read verse 22 through 24 with me again. Notice Jesus' words. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. The idea of the moving mountains is a proverbial expression used by the Jews for doing the impossible. And really, the idea is that prayer supersedes the natural realm, even the natural laws, the natural rules, Think of the example of Elijah. Remember in the Old Testament when Elijah prays for a drought and it doesn't rain. And then he prays for rain and rain comes. And so now Elijah's prayer has now superseded the natural cycle of things. Of course, it's God who's doing it, but Elijah prays and it happens. James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Great power as it is working. One example I can think of of the power of prayer. This is my wife's story and I got her permission. But her parents when she was young uh, you know, had some tough times. Her dad was a minister for a while and was in you know, Christian school education and all that. So they had times in which it was difficult financially. And so they, they decided to pray this very specific prayer. They said this, God, would you give our children perfect teeth that they'll never have to go to the dentist? Which is a pretty bold prayer. Like, I don't know if I'd ever pray something, pray something so specific. Funniest thing happened. They never went to the dentist once their whole life, never had a cavity, never had pain in their teeth, have pretty straight teeth. Me, on the other hand, I grew up jacked up teeth. You know, all this stuff, I'm like... Man, what should I be praying for that I'm not praying for right now? The power of prayer. Is that possible? I'd say it is. The power of prayer. Now, even in that though, there is a warning, verse 24. A warning against selfish praying. A warning against misusing verse 24. Verse 24 has been terribly misused by so many people. And I think sometimes people read Mark 11:24 and they emphasize the personal pronouns, right? So, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And so people think about themselves, rather than thinking about God. And we always have this tendency, because of our flesh and our remaining sin, to even take our prayers and make them about us. This is not name it and claim it, which many people have taken from this verse. This is not the word of faith movement you might have heard of. And the Word of Faith movement teaches that Jesus died on the cross for the salvation of our souls, but also to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. And so if there's something that you desire, you pray with enough faith and you will get it. And this is a pernicious poison that is spreading throughout the world, especially in third world countries like Africa and uh, places uh, where it's, it's doing a lot of damage. This kind of prayer is a mockery because it puts us in charge of God. You know, I'm telling God what to do kind of ordering him around, and we never have the right to tell God what to do. We come into his presence, verse 24, and we ask. Maybe for something as specific as perfect teeth, but we ask and we do so humbly. Our understanding of Mark 11:24 24 is helped by other scriptures. If you study prayer throughout the Bible, we learn that we must pray in accordance with the will of God. That's what God tells us. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's about to go to the cross, And he's facing that down. And he he cries out, my father, if if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, your will be done. Now Jesus did not have the cup pass from him. He drank that cup. Did Jesus lack faith? No, because there's many times in our life where God does not give us maybe what we desired, but gives us what is going to glorify him most. So we must approach God's throne with a humble reverence for God and a deep trust in his sovereignty. I mean, here's where it comes down to is I trust you, God. I trust your control. I trust your sovereignty. That God has the divine prerogative to do whatever he knows is best. And sometimes that's answering us with a yes or a no or a not yet. There are two sinful extremes here with, with prayer. On one hand, we have the extreme of assumption. Like, I assume that God's going to do this for me. You know, I'm I'm naming it and I'm claiming it. And then on the other extreme, we have doubt. Like, I don't think God really can do that. I've been praying for that person to be saved for a long time. I don't think it's even possible. So how do we keep from either extreme of assumption or doubt? I think the thing that keeps us from those extremes is to focus on God's character. Because notice what Jesus says to Peter and the other disciples here. He says, have faith in God. And we think about the character of God, and that keeps us from either assuming or doubting. Here's where the power of prayer is as well. It's not that the power of our prayers are directly related to the power of our faith. The more faith we have, the more power in our prayers. That's not what Jesus says here. He says, have faith in God In fact, another passage where Jesus is talking with his disciples and his disciples say, give us more faith. We want more faith. Jesus says, if you had real faith the size of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. It doesn't take a lot of faith. It takes faith in God. So yes, we must have faith, but Jesus' emphasis is not our faith, but the God of our faith. I'd use this illustration. Prayer is like pulling the trigger of a gun. I had an opportunity a little while ago to do some uh, shooting of guns with some of the pastoral staff. And i got to be honest, I'm not a big gun guy. My dad is. Um, Anytime I have something really powerful next to my head like that, I'm a little nervous. Uh, Just being honest here. And so, but I, you know, I jumped in. I did that whole thing. And I did enjoy the Colt 45 with like the spin thing, whatever that is. Um, But... But I, I, you know, when you shoot a gun and that bullet flies through the air and it hits the target, it's not because you're powerful or I'm powerful. The, it's all the gun. The gun is powerful, but you pull the trigger and then it happens. Prayer is powerful because God is powerful, not because you're powerful, not because you have this powerful faith, but you have real faith in a powerful God and it's Him that, that accomplishes it. It's Him that does it. So if we want to see more and more power in our lives, More and more power in this church, more power out there with unsaved friends. We need to pull that trigger of prayer. The task that God is calling us to as a church is supernatural. It is super, it's above the natural order. This is not a business. If this was a business, then we would just accumulate some really savvy businessmen and women, and then we would build this thing, and if we build it, they will come. But it's actually something that's supernatural. It takes more than just savvy. It takes more than just vision. And and a lot of that's helpful. We need that. But it's supernatural. We're talking about making disciples, finding men and women and boys and girls who are enemies of God, who are dead spiritually, who are blind and who cannot see spiritual things. Who need the Holy Spirit to, to awaken and to bring life And then the Holy Spirit to change them, to to make them more and more like the image of Christ. That's supernatural. That requires more than than just our intellect. It requires more than just our savvy. It requires supernatural, and so it it requires prayer. We cannot do the work God has called us to do without the power of prayer. Without faith-fueled prayers, what are we doing? What are we even doing as a church? I will tell you what we are doing by way of illustration. Kind of silly, but I imagine it this way. This just shows you how strange I am. It's like us pushing each other around in the grocery store in those carts with the little race car in the front, you know. When no engine, no power, acting like we're driving, you know, (laughs) like how your kids do. When God has given us this Porsche 911, or maybe it's a Shelby Cobra or whatever car you prefer, okay, to just open up on Route 41. Or maybe the Autobahn because we'll get in trouble on Route 41, okay? (laughs) And we we are called to fly on mission from God, and we're sitting here playing church. If we're not a praying church, then we're a playing church. Uh, Just keep that in your mind. Bill Hilligans and I pushing each other around in a grocery store cart. How embarrassing would that be? Right? (laughs) See, but it, as a church, if we're not praying, we're missing a fundamental element of what it means to be church. And So this is, a, this is a challenge to me, to you, to us corporately. How much are we praying? How much are we praying? Because prayer is powerful, because it's essential, it must be the lifeblood of what this church does. It must be the lifeblood of all of our ministries. Anything else is a shoddy substitute. So... Be praying. Be praying for more and better. I'll give a little update in a moment on that. Be praying that God works through that endeavor, through the desire to reach more people, to build better disciples. Be praying for Verge student ministries at every campus, especially be be in prayer for the Crown Point campus as they go through transition right now. Be praying for our local outreach, for global partners, for those that are lost that you're sharing Christ with. Pray, pray, pray. If we neglect prayer, this powerful means of grace that God has given us and we cannot be the church God has called us to be. I want to be a praying church. Amen? I don't in any way, shape, or form want to play church. And I don't think you do either.